Welcome to the show. I'm your coach, Elizabeth, and today's guest is Nikki Lanier, and she is somebody that I stumbled upon on TikTok, where so much great content is, I personally believe. And she is a CEO and founder of Harper Slate, which is one of the fastest growing and most highly recognized racial equity advisory firms in the country. Her work focuses on helping organizations cultivate environments where their black and brown talent can thrive. I love how Nikki is just really upfront and transparent about how she feels it is her purpose to be an educator. Um, and I think specifically to white women who are inclined, she says inclined white women. So people who kind of lean in to the subject of racial equity and how they can be supportive of it. So I was excited to have her on the show. Um, again, you guys, I link her TikTok in the show notes. I highly suggest all of her content. I feel like everything she says is from a place of compassion and empathy and inclusiveness. And I think that this is a topic that can very easily turn divisive. When you talk about racial equity and privilege, it can be very triggering, I think, for both sides. So I was so pleased that she agreed to come on the show and frankly, you know, help educate myself. I'm always learning and also share some tips with you guys, most specifically about how to handle potentially divisive discussions around the holiday table. Um, I think we all probably have one of those relatives who we know is going to pop off and say some dumb shit, potentially racist, and we need to know how to respond. What is our role in this? Is it our role to try to educate them and and bring them over, quote unquote, to this other side of racial equity? Or is our job to listen to them? So Nikki answered that question for us in this show, and I appreciate her. And I think you're going to get a lot of really good, like tactical things to do, but also some big, big, some bigger picture questions that I think we should all be asking ourselves about our role in racial equity. Nikki, thank you for being on the show today. This is definitely a topic I think that we really can't talk about enough. And I just love all of the content that you provide. You guys, this woman I told her before we got on is out here doing God's work. She's out here trying to make the world a better place. And I'm here for it. I feel like your content, especially on TikTok, is very easily digestible. So I just kind of thought we could hit some of the topics maybe of some of your top videos and as well, get everybody prepared for what they might encounter over the holidays. We've all got some people that maybe we don't see eye to eye on, but race is always a super hot topic. So thanks for being on, Nikki. My pleasure, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for having me. Raspy voice and all. So thank you. Yeah. But see, that's the thing. Sometimes the raspy voice is even better, right? It's like, the, I, I love like a raspy voice. Um, <laughs> but I think, too, like when you feel called to speak, you should speak. So I'm glad we didn't move this this session because I think it's timely and everything is divinely happening when we need to hear it. So tell our audience a little bit about, about your background because it is so vast. I feel like if we talk about your purpose and passion, it really is racial equity. And you've been one of the people who've stepped to the forefront saying what I'll teach. Because not everybody wants to step to the forefront and educate the white population on black and brown issues and how we can be better allies. Why don't you tell us a little bit of your background so that viewers can get to know you a little better? Happy to. And that is so it's an appropriate place to start because it is that context that informs the way that I practice. So I started out my career practicing law in South Florida. I graduated from the University of Miami School of Law, and I focused on labor and employment for like the first couple of years of my career. So I worked representing employers around um, issues like employment discrimination and, you know, all the Title VII stuff, some affirmative action work, lots of labor work, NLRB, NLRA work with unions and the like. Um, and then I really spent the bulk of my career in human resources. So I've worked for public sector and private. I've worked all over the country, East Coast, West Coast. I've worked for big companies and small. 
I've been the chief HR officer for three different companies, learning a lot about how work works, when and where it restores, how it depletes, what we expect from work and what happens when those there's breaches over time in terms of what we need work to deposit in us, uh, even if we're not able to articulate that. But we there's these gaps that not just contribute to our disengagement, but actually contribute to how we feel about ourselves overall. So I became a student of that as I was leading HR spaces and really trying to resurrect a different kind of human capital methodology and ideology that we think about how we think about the human resources very differently in organizations. And then fortuitously for seven years, I worked for the Federal Reserve and I didn't do HR or legal work. I worked, I did macroeconomic policy and monetary theory. And I worked with a lot of economists to study the guts of how monetary policy happens and how we think about the economic well-being of our country at the macro level and micro to some extent, but also got a chance to study a lot about kind of the cost of exclusion, the cost of hate, the cost of racism, and began to really quantify that in 2020, the year that sat us all down. Um, You may know that I live and work in Louisville, Kentucky, and that was, of course, where Breonna Taylor was murdered, and I got to see the um, collision of pain and anguish and frustration and despair, what happens when that is met with anger and exhaustion and desperation? I watched that spill out onto the streets. And I also watched our business and philanthropic and banking and governmental community leaders really not know what to do with any of it. Mm-hmm. And so it was really at that point that I decided I wanted to spend whatever time I had left, whatever breath I had left to breathe professionally working in the racial equity space, because I understand that there is such a, oh gosh, Elizabeth, when we look at like the demographic trends afoot, the country is becoming browner and blacker. And that has consequences economically, has consequences, of course, for the workplace and the workforce. And I just wanted to be able to offer to employers and to communities a different way to nestle these these issues inside of our thinking, inside of our hearts and minds, beyond right thing to do, beyond social justice, I really see the accelerated amplification of people of color as in the macroeconomic imperative. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that your work kind of organically brought you to this space, right? Like really understanding it because some of the stuff you said, I kind of gloss over because it just means she's really fucking smart. She knows what she's talking about. She spent a lot of time in this space, whereas I have not, you know, I don't, Economics is like not something that's ever felt interesting to me, really understanding it. But at the end, I mean, that's when we're talking about consequences of racism and hate. I mean, I love how you said that. Like, there it is. It's it's very obvious when you start breaking down the economics of it. So one thing that really connected me to your work and the content that you provide on social media was this calling of, okay, white women, if you don't know what to do, seek out somebody who's willing to educate you. But what we don't want to do is just kind of put blinders on and say, well, I can't say anything right, so I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to kind of shut down. I'm not going to talk to my racist uncle at Thanksgiving. And I'm just going to kind of like play my role. I'm going to be, I won't be racist, but I won't be an anti-racist. And I really do feel like there is a point of differentiation there. So could you expand a little bit more on that, Nikki, like what you're seeing and feeling and what the difference between the two might be. So what I know to be true is by 2045, we will have an unprecedented demographic shift in our country in terms of who we will be relying on to buoy the sustenance 
of the American economy. And that has both macroeconomic, monetary policy, and fiscal policy implications. So said differently and more plainly, if we are continuing on our current track, we are marching most decidedly to an apartheid state where the majority of our citizen body, i.e. black and brown people, have very little or episodic, episodic, highly contextualized experience with the fundamentals of our economy, the fundamentals of the American dream. So the fundamentals of like all the things, basically it's an apartheid state. So knowing that, I thought, well, what is the population of folks who really are interested in, want to know more about, curious around, but have been left to their own devices to figure out racism and how to eradicate it? White women, right? So there are lots of white women who are really interested in doing this work, who want to know more about how to be meaningfully potent in advancing racial equity strategies and beliefs and ideals in every space they hold. And many have been focused on their own learning path. Read a book, go watch a movie. Like at some point you're like, okay, so, and now what? And because racial equity, in my opinion, is not intuitive work, it is very disruptive work. It is work that could easily anger. And if you don't have an understanding of like change management methodology, like all those things, it could become like super daunting. So that's when I was like, okay, we're going to focus on creating a pathway, a program, a movement, a set of experiences specifically for the inclined white woman to help them help support, serve as a cocooning organization, give frameworks for, give definitions to, practice, run role plays with white women so that in the spaces that you are in, which quite frankly, there's, there's something to be leveraged because of the nexus and the proximity mm-hmm. that you have to white men in particular. Of course. People on this space that I just will never have. There's something to be leveraged there. So that's what kind of birthed the idea of creating what we call the Rare Woman Collective. And Rare stands for Radical Action Advancing Racial Equity. I love it. So what do you feel like is the, I don't want to say like the biggest obstacle because we don't, I mean, it can be hard to kind of oversimplify here, but do you really feel that there isn't an urgency necessarily with maybe inclined white women or just curious white women? Because they have nothing, I don't want to say they have nothing to gain, but they don't have anything to lose if they don't. I just feel like it's very easy to just keep living your life because it doesn't affect you. At least you don't think so yet, right? Like, we're looking long-term economically. But in my life, I mean, I live in Orange County and I, you know, I think I'm friends with like the one black woman who lives in a 10 mile radius. It's sad. Um, She's great. But I feel like when it's like, if you don't see it, you don't think about it. I don't see homeless people out here. I see people waiting for the bus stop every once in a while, but it's just, it's not like in Chicago when I lived there, it was very much more diverse and you can see the economical I don't want to even say classes, but the disparity between people here, it's just like you could just very easily go along to get along, Nikki. Like you would never feel the fire under your feet unless it's in your heart to try to educate yourself. So what brings women to this point of wanting to join this group and become more educated and dare I even say turn into somewhat of an advocate? Yeah. Uh, that was a theory that I wanted to test. And that's part of the reason why I went on TikTok um, and and kind of niched myself into a narrow audience of speaking specifically to white women to see if I put out a call and asked white women if they had assistance, help, support, 
nomenclature had a racial equity strategist with some level of pedigree to help them, would that be would that be something that they would want to um to to leverage? And like I think we're at like ninety thousand something followers at this point. And so to me, so that thing that there's there is an incubating audience of women who are inclined in this space. But to answer your question more specifically, when you think about, and most have never had to, what racism has stolen from you, it really does cause you to pause and think about that very differently. Because for most white people, that's a question that's never been asked. And so I don't talk about racism or racial equity work with white people, at least white women, in terms of advocacy work. I talk about it in terms of leadership work, because I don't necessarily want you to advocate for me or, you know, right. po- folk. I want you to advocate because you are equally mad and angry and frustrated at what racism has stolen from you too. What is stolen from your family? What is stolen from your household? What is stolen from the quality education that you could have received in our country had it not been for the way that racism and the need to preserve it has manifested? The friendships that it has stolen, the ability to work and traverse and navigate your neighborhoods differently, the inability to just even collide human to human without having to find it, figure out the narrative and fight your way through the narrative that's been assigned to all of us and just like see a friend, see another human being without the assignment of all the things. And if you really pause to think about it and had to write it out, which I did ask a lot of my TikTok followers to do, there are like hundreds and hundreds of examples of where racism has stolen from white people. And that, excuse me, that will continue to metastasize economically, as we think about the lost GDP, lost productivity, opportunity costs for, for our country. And again, living inside, can you imagine what it would be like for your children to have to live inside of a United States that operates like apartheid, much like what we see right now with Pal- Palestinian issues, what we see happen in South Africa. It's really no different than what we're facing. And I don't want to be melodramatic, but, but, but apartheid only has one of two outcomes that end it. One is some sort of civil war, civil discourse, or the second is a collapse of the nation's economy. I love that you phrase it like that. What is racism stolen from you? I wrote that down. I think that that's big because I think as a white, I'm just speaking from my personal experience, I think you can fall into this trap of, that's why I even I held back from saying advocate because it's not about a handout or, you know, white saviorhood or any of this. Like I need to come, it isn't. It's like, we're all people. And if we yeah. need to just look inside, like, how does this affect me? And it's not just from a place of guilt or you should be doing this or you shouldn't or you're, you're a shitty person if you're not using the privilege that you have. I think that could be a sticky web that people get caught in as well. And it's this wonderful excuse to just not do anything, to just not be involved, because it feels like, yeah, no matter what I say, it's going to be wrong, um, even to myself. And I'm going to feel guilty for being ignorant. Like, I mean, that's one other good thing that white women and that's a superpower is to just like kind of shit on themselves too, or just say that was, oh, you fucking idiot, you know, or whatever, like just really. And then it can lead to this place of paralysis where nothing happens. So I love the reframing of it. And and it's a different intention behind it is what is this stolen from me? I know that racism has stolen from me relationships with family members a million percent, you know, and that makes me really sad. And, and we're talking about the holidays coming up. I mean, I, everybody makes these jokes about, you know, the racist uncle or whoever, but it does. It steals joy away from it. It's anxiety. It's going there knowing that you're probably going to clash with somebody because if they say some racist shit at the table, you have to call them out, right? Like that's what being an anti-racist is. But then that starts this whole other thing. So can you help us navigate, Nikki, 
and you did check out her TikTok. You guys, she did a great video on the holidays and navigating this. But can you give us some pointers on maybe how to approach these potential, you know, lively conversations that we might have with some family members around race and because it's unavoidable right now, like it's everywhere mm-hmm. and anti-Semitism. I mean, it's just like we are at a fire point. And I think it's going to be hard to escape the holidays, just, you know, pulling the wool over and pretending like nothing, none, none of this stuff is happening, that we don't have opinions on it. What's most important to me, Elizabeth, is that people always remember what is if I am promulgating and promoting racial equity, which is different, in my opinion, than anti-racism. It's not I don't actually use that word in my work only because it tends to the brain tends to focus on what I'm not supposed to do and what I'm not supposed to be rather than. We've all inherited a narrative of of racism. We all, to some extent, if we're honest, have some beliefs that the racist uncle does. We just do. We just some suppress it better or differently. Don't say it out loud, whatever. We're on different growth paths or different trajectories. And so it's not so much that as much as it is, what else could I offer into the space that could invite a new way of thinking and believing? And and if that's the outcome that you go into your Thanksgiving (laughs) meal with the uncle and also thinking about a grace-filled conversation recognizing that grandma or the uncle or the grandpa, whoever it is, for the most part, don't know what else to be and haven't had a life that expects them to be anything other than that. Meaning most white people don't aren't aren't asked with any regularity, how do you really feel about people of color? And where did that come from? What are your under, what's your understanding? Have you had any engagements with? Have you ever had any personal relationships with any friendships with? Where does it come from? Like, I want to better understand it so that I can invite you to think about another possibility, another reality, because the goal isn't to clap back. That's not a solution. 25 needs us to have fewer people who operate fully in their racism. Clapping back on the uncle and shutting him down and checking him is not getting us to that goal, right? I know, but it feels good sometimes. (laughs) But but it's also it's righteous rage. Forgive me, but it is also a little, it's immature, right? And it's ineffective. It's ineffective. It's completely ineffective. Not if you're, not if your goal is to help him along the way. If your goal is just to shut him down and get through the conversation, you've not, you've not helped to create one less racist, right? Right. He's going to dig in. I, I, cause I've tried it and they dig in. Anything you're making them not racist, like they, they just are not going to budge. I love how you said, and I don't want to like simplify it, but when you said like, what was your experience with black and brown people? Why do you feel this way? It's kind of like if you're in school and you meet some bitch named Heather and then the rest of your life, you hate every other chick named Heather because you had that one. And it's like, no, dude, like this is how that is how ridiculous this sounds. Right. So even if they can say I had an interaction, you know, in, in our family, there was an incident where um, one of the family members was killed during a robbery. And the person that was the gunman happened to be an African-American man. And so it was just this lifelong excuse to just hate black people forever, pretty openly. And I remember as a kid being like, wow, okay, but that was that one person. And so now this is just everybody. Like even as, you know, a, a little kid, I just didn't understand it. And this was extended family. But I think that a lot of people just live by that. Like, yep, okay, no, I have that experience. And then they drop a pin in their brain and that's where they go back to every time they have an encounter. Well, and it's an, if you're if we're honest, it's an easy place to go to because that experience matches the narrative. 
Right. Right. There's a default and nar- narrative that's assigned to black and brown people around deficiency and um, a, a subhuman category that, of course, your uncle falls into that because we all do. We all fall victim to that narrative. We some of us claw our way out of it daily to try to feed ourselves new, new ways of thinking and believing because that's a choice that we've made based on a certain trigger or a certain opportunity that presented itself to think and be, behave differently. Your uncle needs that same kind of trigger and that same opportunity and perhaps more opportunities to be softened and not to be chastised. That's like, there's no efficacy in it. Oh my God, I love that you said that. God, God. If, you guys, if you take anything away from this, don't do not do it, man, because you're going to dig right. in and you're going to be spinning your wheels and you'll be sinking further in the mud. And a lot of times there's alcohol involved too, which is like not right. Um, And right. everybody just gets hot and starts popping off and it's not good. It never ends well. I wanted to ask you something, Nikki, because I think, I don't know if it's just me, but I feel like sometimes even with my white girlfriends, there's this feeling of, well, the black community wouldn't accept us, even though we desperately want to be friends with black women. I want to learn. I don't approach friendships as help me understand this. Now, some of my black girlfriends that I've known for a while, I can say like, from this place of like ignorance, I really love it. Are you willing to talk about this? You know, some of your experience. But I think too, like, I wonder if it's like, wow, I mean, because I just see so much color and flavor and diversity and all of this. So I feel drawn to black women. I'm like, I want to be friends. I want to learn. But I also feel this like, oh, come on, white woman. Nope. Like, nope, you're not invited to the cookout, if you will. And so I think that even when that happens, then it can make white women retreat a little bit because we then can sometimes be characterized, characterized as a basic Starbucks driving bitch with a Range Rover, you know, who just doesn't give a shit. And I think that there's a huge group of women, I'm sure a lot in this group that aren't that, don't want to be that, would love to have deep connections with Black women. But sometimes we feel like they don't want to party with us. And yeah, I mean, I and I that's probably always going to be the case. I mean, there's a lot of trauma that's informing the relationships of how we connect one to another along racial lines is something else racism it's a residue of racism and inherited narrative of racism it's taught us to not trust one another especially black people black women because there are just a lot of examples of where white women have historically caused harm to our men in particular to our families to our to our livelihood but but there's there's also a number of uh, experiences that say otherwise but they're just not as loud and they're just not as understandably common. But all I can speak for is for me and, and my the community that we're curate, curating with the Rare Woman Collective. And it is, you know, this is more than just Black women wanting to befriend white women. These are, you know, the team that I've created are uh, uh, curated. Are, we're all racial equity leaders. I mean, we're international, yeah. have spoken all over the world on this stuff and highly pedigreed. And we all recognize that in order to meet the need of 2045 and to address and to create a world where racism can't live, create a world where apartheid is not going to be our inevitability, we have to have an after five o'clock wraparound experience and be in the in as much as women in general curate the consciousness for communities and our homes. That's where the target has to be. So it is honestly my heart's desire to be in space with the inclined. Again, this is not about converting people who don't want to be bothered and who are just like, they're doing whatever. But if there is an interest, I want you in our space. I want to be a part, I want you to be a part of the Rear Woman Collective. I want to help teach and mold and and guide and give definition to and framework and an understanding of how to be really potent in this space 
to include all the stuff that has to happen inside of us, inside of you, before you start trying to figure out what you're going to deliver through you. And so I'm just really excited about the momentum. And I really see this as a movement. So it takes each white woman talking to another white woman, talking to another white woman yeah. about what this means. Well, I applaud you and I am happily want to get just totally wrapped up in all of this. I appreciate your time, even with the flu. Look at you, man. I mean, just it flows. It flows naturally, Nikki. And I have all of her links below in the show notes. You guys, at a bare minimum, start following her on TikTok. Start familiarizing yourself with this content. We're also going to link the Rare Woman Collective. But I just can't thank you enough. I thank you for being an outspoken educator to say, hey, again, not everybody. It's not everybody's um burden. I don't even say burden, but like it's I mean, it might not be your calling to educate, right? Like maybe it isn't. But so it just makes the ones who stand forward and say, you know what, I'll I'll educate and I'll be the safe space where you can ask dumb shit and you could you know what I mean? Like you could ask what you're feeling without this blanket or this fear of repercussion of judgment. Um yes. because to your point, that's not going to move us forward. So I really thank you and your team for all of your work. You guys check her out. I The accolades run deep as far as the pedigree. Like you, I love that you called that out of the women who are focused on this work is unmatched. So thank you for your time, Nikki. And everybody, be sure to link up with Nikki in the, the show notes below. Thank you.